everyone. Welcome to the VectorCast, a podcast about classic arcade vector games. I'm your host, Michael Zenner, coming to you from lovely Portland, Oregon. This is Season 1, the season of Atari, and today we are on Episode 2, and since we are covering the games in the order in which they were produced, today we will be talking about the second vector game released from Atari, 1979's phenomenal, iconic, legendary runaway hit, Asteroids. And I have two conflicting thoughts on this. One is, really, what is there to say about asteroids? The other one is, what isn't there to say about asteroids? If you have any interest at all in arcade games of any sort, it is extremely likely that you've come across an asteroids machine and know the basics of what the game is all about. But, just in case, Asteroids is a one- or two-player game in which the player controls a triangular spaceship and maneuvers through and battles a field of asteroids and the occasional hostile flying saucer. Asteroids was released in November of 1979, which, as we record this, is exactly 40 years ago. Uh, The drop date for this episode is going to be November 1st, so it is the anniversary month, Asteroids' 40th birthday. Uh, Asteroids uses either a 19 or 15 inch black and white vector monitor depending on the cabinet type. The game was primarily designed by Ed Logg, Lyle Raines, and Howard Delman. Howard Delman worked mainly on the hardware, including some of the special sound circuits that we'll be talking about later. Lyle Raines was pretty much responsible for the overall game design and concept, and Ed Logg, the legendary Ed Logg, did most of the actual programming. As I alluded to, Asteroids came in three different cabinets. One is the standard upright, which is by far the most common version that you're likely to see out in the wild. There was also a smaller, what Atari called a cabaret version, which is still an upright, but much more compact. The idea being that it would fit in well in a home environment, or possibly a bar or a restaurant, or anywhere where a full-size game might not comfortably fit. Finally, there was the cocktail version, which is a tabletop cabinet with a set of controls on each of the long sides, so two players could sit at it and the game display would flip to face the active player in between uh, each player's turn. Like I said, the upright is by far the most common variant, so let's talk about that. The overall cut of the cabinet is identical to Atari's previous release, Lunar Lander. Uh, In fact, the first 300 or so Asteroids games actually were in Lunar Lander cabinets, and in the event you missed the Lunar Lander episode, the cabinet is large, angular, and imposing, has a very strong late 1970s design sense to it. It's just about six feet tall, two feet wide, and about two and a half feet deep. The side art is mainly black, but with a color palette that really makes me think of the comic books I was into when I was 9 or 10 years old. There's a wide blue band running across the lower part of the image with some white streaks crossing it, with some space debris and other stuff giving the feeling of a vast expanse of space. And on top of the spacescape, there are a few orange and yellow circles with some jaggedy white crosses through them, which I suppose represents some kind of explosion. So that's the background. Right on top of this is a spaceship that looks nothing like anything in the game, but looks an awful lot, at least to me, like a Cylon Raider from the original Battlestar Galactica series. One theme we'll really be seeing as we continue through the Atari games, the side art is almost always gorgeous, but rarely actually looks like anything you'll find in the game. So, great, beautiful side art that really reminds me of the Marvel Comics adaptation of Battlestar Galactica that I loved as a kid. Coming around to the front, the lighted marquee at the top of the cab has another Cylon Raider on it. It's actually really similar to the side art, and has the name of the game in big, bold, yellow type with a red shadow background behind it. Once again, it's got a very 1970s design feel to it. 
Unlike most other Atari vector games, which mostly used tinted glass or acrylic for the bezel in front of the display, Asteroids used clear plexiglass. Along the bottom of the bezel are some graphics explaining the rules of the game and showing the various shapes of the rocks and saucers. Up the sides are some black, white, and red graphics, which once again really remind me of one of my favorite sci-fi shows from the 70s. The cardboard monitor shroud behind the bezel has a really interesting design printed on it, representing a number of asteroids flying by. It really is a cool shroud, and is cut in such a way that the art actually intrudes on the display a little bit on the left-hand part of the screen. I've never noticed it interfering with the game, but I, su I suppose it's possible. Yeah, probably not, though. It really does add to the overall look of the machine, though, because most games at this time just had a regular black monitor shroud, and this one has this big, colorful art print on it. Now, onto the control panel. Like most Atari games, the panel is a single piece of bent sheet metal. The graphics are silkscreened directly onto the black panel, and the design is made up of white, red, and blue shapes. The controls are two volcano buttons at the top of the panel for one or two player start, and then there are five totally familiar white arcade style buttons in what is often called the classic five button arrangement or if you said asteroids controls arrangement I think everyone would know what you're talking about. It's a horizontal row of two buttons then a space and then another row of two more buttons and below the space between the two rows is another button. Now the left two buttons are for left and right rotation and the right two buttons are for thrust and fire and the lower button in the center is for hyperspace and we'll talk about that in the gameplay section in just a second. The cabaret version of the cabinet is quite a bit more compact. It's about four and a half feet tall, two feet deep, and about 20 inches wide. And the top of the profile, if you're looking at it, the cabinet from the side, is pretty triangular. And the sides have the classic Atari cabaret wood grain vinyl on them. It's got a 15-inch monitor, which is tilted back pretty steeply inside the cabinet. And the control panel has a simplified black and white pattern screened onto it. It doesn't have the same red, white, and blue graphics that the upright does. So it's just got the simplified black and white pattern screened onto it. It's got a more simplified version of the game rules from the upright bezel. And the bezel is a single sheet of gray tinted plexiglass. And the cardboard monitor shroud is just regular black like every other game of the era. The lighted marquee is actually on the front of the cabinet below the control panel, just above the coin door, which is actually a standard size coin door. So overall, it's a much more compact and really pretty understated version of the cabinet. The cocktail cabinet also uses a 15-inch monitor and is a classic cocktail design. The main cabinet is a, it's got a roughly triangular profile um, or sort of wedge shape. The wide part is on top and it tapers as it gets toward the bottom so you can uh, pull your chair up to it. And on either of the short ends, it's supported by two metal legs which are bolted into the cab and they've got broad feet at the bottom that run the entire depth of the cabinet. And if you're into wood grain, you're gonna love this cabinet. The top is entirely covered in a sheet of glass, and everything that isn't the monitor cutout is pretty much covered in wood grain. There's decals in the four corners, which have the uh, which identify the game. It's got the logo, it's got a rule sheet, and it there's a couple of arrows that point to where the start buttons are, and that's necessary because the start buttons are actually not immediately visible from the player's position. They are under the right side of one of the long edges of the, of the cabin. You have to reach below the surface to, to punch them, so they're not always visible, so you've got that indicator right there. Along the two long sides of the cabinet, each player has a control panel, which is mounted below the level of the top surface, and it's got another very simplified design screened onto it, but it's got the same five-button arrangement as the other two designs. In all three cabinet designs, the top of the display shows player one score in the upper left-hand corner, player two score in the upper right-hand corner, and right in the top center of the display in smaller type is the current high score. 
Above each player's score is a row of ships representing how many lives the player has in reserve. Finally, there's a small copyright notice at the bottom of the display that stays on all the time. Prepare for battle. Okay, gameplay. After the player or players drop their quarters and press one of the flashing start buttons, player one's ship, which is a small, simple triangle or wedge shape, appears at the center of the screen. And from the size of the display, a number of large asteroids appear and they drift across the screen going in a straight line. It's not necessarily uh, completely horizontal. In fact, I think it never is, but they are going in a straight line. They don't bend or change their path at all as they make their way across. The familiar thump kind of heartbeat sound begins slowly. Player can rotate the ship using the rotate buttons, move around using the thrust button, and fire projectiles at the asteroids using the fire button. As the player moves around the display, the ship is subjected to momentum. It takes a little bit of time after the thrust button is pressed before the ship starts moving, and once it moves, it will continue moving after the button has been released, following along the same path, so it is completely possible to get the ship moving, release the thrust button, then rotate the ship so that it's flying sideways or even backward. It will eventually slow and stop, but it does take a while. Similarly, if the player wants to change the ship's path, it may take quite a bit of thrust with the ship at a different orientation to actually start to see the change in path. And with all this moving around, the ship will eventually hit the edge of the screen, and when it does, it wraps around and appears at the opposite point on the screen where it left. Of course, there are those asteroids I mentioned a little while ago. If the ship should hit one of them, it will be destroyed. Luckily, the ship is armed and you can shoot the asteroids. When a large asteroid is hit, it breaks into two medium-sized asteroids which fly off at some angle and speed, which are related to but not the same as the path of the large asteroid that they both belonged to before it was hit. And in turn, the medium asteroids, when they're hit, turn into two small asteroids, and they take off at a speed and a path that is related to but not identical to the medium asteroids that they used to be before they were hit. Once the small asteroids get hit, they disappear. And all of the asteroids can pass through each other without colliding. And just like the player ship, the asteroids will wrap around if they pass through an edge of the screen. As the asteroids are hit, the pace of the beat sound increases until by the time a wave is down to its final rock or two, the beat is really getting excited. At some point while the player is clearing the rocks, one of two different flying saucers will appear from either the left or right side of the screen and make their way across while shooting at the player's ship. There's a big saucer, which was known during development as Sluggo, which is of course a larger target and doesn't shoot as aggressively or aim as well as the other small saucer, which was known as Mr. Bill during development. The small saucer is a real pain. It shoots much more accurately and is much harder to hit. There's some good news though. If the saucers should collide with an asteroid, they will be destroyed. And also the saucers don't wrap when they hit the edge of the screen. They just make one trip across and then they disappear. If things get really bad and the player feels like they're really in a tight spot, there is a desperate and pretty risky option remaining. The player can hit the hyperspace button, which will cause the ship to disappear and then reappear at a random location somewhere else on the screen. And there is, of course, absolutely no guarantee that the ship will appear in a situation that is any better than the one that it left. And there is also the possibility that the ship will appear and just randomly explode. That's just uh, uh, something that is built into the mechanics of hyperspace. Even if it doesn't hit anything, it can just explode on re-entry. Okay, scoring. The large asteroids are worth 20 points when hit, medium asteroids are worth 50 points, and small asteroids are worth 100 points. The big saucer is worth 300, the small saucer is worth 1,000. And every 10,000 points earns the player a bonus ship 
which is represented by another ship icon above the player score. And also it's accompanied by what I think is one of the most iconic bonus ship sounds in all of gaming. This is almost like, to me, this is like the knocker on a pinball machine where it is loud and it lets everybody in the room know that someone has just done something really cool. The score counter goes out to five digits, so it rolls over to 100,000, and that is it. If you manage to make it into the top 10 scores since the game was most recently turned on, you can put your initials in. This is the first time that Atari included an actual high score table in a vector game. Unfortunately, it does reset every time the game is rebooted, so we would have to wait a little bit for a high score table that would survive a power cycle, and the good news is that wait won't be too long. So that's the basic gameplay, but there is one noteworthy strategy which might even be considered an exploit. When I was growing up, we called it ship hunting, but I've since heard it called lurking. And actually, I think these are slightly different techniques, but they do have a similar effect. In each case, the player clears out almost an entire wave of asteroids, but leaves one or two medium or small rocks, preferably ones that are moving slowly and vertically. Rocks that are moving crosswise are a little harder to work with. Anyway, once the screen is almost entirely clear of asteroids, the player then flies the ship vertically, wrapping through the screen, top to bottom, and waits for the saucers to appear. The player then turns the ship and launches a volley of shots, so they're almost like they're strafing the saucer, hopefully catching it and destroying it. And this can be a very effective method of point pressing, since each small saucer is worth 1,000 points, and there's the, that bonus ship for every 10,000, it can be pretty easy to rack up some serious score and extra lives with less potential risk than flying around through a really dense field of asteroids. The other method involves hanging out at one side of the screen and quickly wrapping horizontally when the saucer appears. The Game logic does not let the saucer aim at the player through the edge of the screen, so it can't wrap its shots. It can only shoot directly at the player. And the effect is the same even if the method is a little different. It is basically clearing the, clearing the asteroids out until you've got a very low risk uh, situation and then just waiting for the saucer to come by and gaining score from shooting those. Now when I was a kid, it seemed like there was an asteroids machine everywhere. Every convenience store, every grocery store, pizza place, you name it, there was an asteroids machine there. Given that Atari shipped by the end of it more than 70,000 games, that might actually have been pretty close to the truth. There may actually have been one just about everywhere. I have some great memories of getting a game in before school at the convenience store across the street or stopping off on the way home. I also have a great strong memory of playing games at the Malibu Grand Prix Arcade in Beaverton, Oregon. Beaverton is a, a suburb that's just west of Portland. And by the way, if you're familiar with the story of Polybius, the game that the men in black supposedly placed in an arcade and made some people go crazy, the Malibu Grand Prix in Beaverton is where that was supposed to have happened. Anyway, I, I, I have my doubts about the Polybius story. <laughs> but another story that I know is true yeah, because I saw it, is that uh, that arcade is where I first saw somebody rack up so many extra ships on asteroids that the row actually went all the way across the screen. Now, in my life, I've never done that, but it's got to be something like 40 or 50 or 60 extra ships. I was probably 10 or 11 years old, and the kid who was playing was probably 14 or 15. And I remember he offered up his game for sale to a kid who was probably a couple years older than he was, so he was maybe 16 or 17. And I think the, the kid who had racked up all these extras wanted something like five bucks for his game. I walked away while they were negotiating, and I came back a little while later, and sure enough, the older kid apparently had bought the game off the younger kid because he was, he was now playing it, and 
let's just say the, the row of ships was no longer all the way across the screen. Even then, even as a kid, I remember I really admired that kid's form of entrepreneurship, right? Which is put in a quarter, play for a couple of hours, then walk away with five bucks, right? Not too bad. And here it is more than 30 years later, and I remember it well. So obviously, it made an impression on me. And that also brings up an interesting complaint that uh, a lot of operators had about asteroids, that between lurking or ship hunting or whatever it was that you called it where you were, where you lived, operators were occasionally getting a little annoyed that it was possible for somebody to come in at 9 in the morning put in one quarter and that was all that game earned all day because it was just that one kid that just played it forever on that one quarter. And supposedly this drove some operators nuts, but there's a little more evidence that suggests that it wasn't nearly as bad as they had suggested because what would happen is you'd see these people, people would come into the arcade, they'd see the person doing really well and that of course would inspire them to practice. So anytime that person wasn't there, spending all day on one quarter. There were a bunch of other people there trying to get good enough at it. Because Asteroids is actually a pretty difficult game. It's it's one where once you really get good at a few of the tricks, yeah, you can make it last a long time, but there's quite a learning curve to get up there. And there are so many other great stories around Asteroids, and the world record is no exception. And I know I've said before that the VectorCast isn't really about world records, but this really is a great story. The first recognized world record was set in 1982 uh, by Leo Daniels, who has held a number of video game world records in his time. And Leo's score was just over 40 million. And just a few months later, still in 1982, a newcomer to the scene named Scott Safran, who was 15 years old at the time, spent 60 hours, 60 hours, racking up a score of 41,336,440 points. I'll say it again. The key point here is it took 60 hours. Apparently that experience used up all the interest that he had in asteroids. According to his family, after that particular lost weekend, he found other interests and pretty much faded into the background as far as the arcade scene goes. Now that record stood for a long time. In 1998, Walter Day of Twin Galaxies fame set out to find Scott Saffron to recognize what at that time was the longest known standing arcade game world record. And it took about four years of searching before they finally discovered that Scott Saffron had actually died a few years earlier. And I believe it was 1989. He fell off the balcony of his apartment while trying to rescue his cat. So Day presented a posthumous award to Saffron's family and that was in 2002. So again, that record had stood for a long time and continued to stand for a long time. It wasn't until 2010 when John McAllister of lovely Portland, Oregon, put on a 58-hour marathon live stream and racked up 41,838,740 points. Once again, 58 hours. Think about that for a second. If you have a 9 to 5 Monday through Friday job and you get home Friday and start playing at 6 p.m., Six or 58 hours later, it's 4 a.m. Monday morning. You've got like three hours to take a nap before you need to start getting ready for work. Think about that for a second. Now, the origins of some of the design elements in asteroids are fairly obvious. The design of the ship and the basic maneuvering scheme, for example, go all the way back to the very first Space War game 
which was developed at MIT in 1962 and run on a DEC PDP-1 mini-computer. In Space War, two players dogfight in two different spaceships called the Needle and the Wedge. Now, the Wedge, of course, is pretty much exactly the same as the ship in Asteroids. In a space war, the players control their ships using rotation and thrust and can even escape in hyperspace just like in asteroids. Also, just like in asteroids, from time to time a ship will explode upon re-entry from hyperspace, so it really is the same mechanic. In space war, the ships have momentum just like they do in asteroids, but there is a star in the middle of the screen in space war which has a gravity well that affects the path and speed of the ships as they get closer to it and can suck them in. Now, the design of Space War made its way almost completely intact into computer space, which was designed in 1971 by Syzygy Engineering, which would later change its name to Atari. So the basic mechanisms of movement in asteroids were quite familiar to the folks at Atari by the time Asteroids was in development. Interestingly, Asteroids, which is one of the most successful arcade games of all time, uh, was a huge victory for Atari that was born of a failure. Back in April of 1979, Ed Logg, who was working uh, as an engineer at Atari at the time, was called into his boss's office. His boss was Lyle Raines. And he was called in to talk about a game that had been in development, but that never quite clicked and never really got fun. And in this game, two players tried to shoot each other, but in between them was a large, indestructible asteroid. And it turns out that when players were playing the game, they just couldn't resist shooting the rock, even though it didn't do anything at all. And Nobody really liked the game. So Rain suggested to Log that he work on a version where the asteroid could be destroyed. This, of course, was a time when games like Space Invaders and Super Breakout were big, and Reigns was interested in another game that gave the player a sort of sense of completion, where the player could successfully eliminate all threats and feel like they'd accomplished something for a while, of course, before it started all over again. Now in 2009, in issue number 68 of Retro Gamer Magazine, uh, Lyle Raines described the assignment that he gave to Ed Logg. And he says, I believe I described the concept to Ed in a few sentences. Little flying ships as in computer space, big rocks becoming little rocks, fly and shoot till they all go away. There was no great detail. And that's the end of the quote. They also came up with the name at the time and they obviously nailed it on the first try. Now, initially, Lyle Raines was thinking the game should use a standard raster display, but Ed Logg was really excited to try out the new XY hardware that was then in use in Lunar Lander, so Raines backed off a little bit. In that same Retro Gamer article, uh, Raines recalls, quote, Ed wanted to fool around with the new vector or XY hardware before starting his next project. I suggested the game idea more as a creative exercise than a full-blown project. Obviously, it took on a life of its own. Edlog then reached out to Howard Delman, who had been developing the vector generation hardware that was in use on Lunar Lander. Now, uh, Log had worked on parts of Lunar Lander before, including the distinctive alphanumeric character set that was used in Lunar Lander's on-screen titles. Delman set Log up with a custom modified Lunar Lander game board fitted with some extra RAM and a custom auxiliary board with hand-wired discrete circuits for the 13 different sounds used in the game. And for those nerdier listeners, that's right. Asteroids does not have a sound chip. Those sounds are all discrete. The board, of course, still used the digital vector generator that uh, Howard Delman had developed for Lunar Lander. And that board, the very first Asteroids, is currently owned by Howard Delman, and that has got to be a real point of pride and just a cool piece of history. 
Now it didn't take Edlog long at all to get a prototype working, just about two weeks, and it, and it caught on immediately. Before it was even off of Log's desk, it was getting extensive playtesting from just about anyone working in the building that happened to be walking by. Coworkers would stop by and ask Ed, you know, hey, uh, when are you planning on heading home? So they could play the game. One of my favorite stories about this is from Owen Rubin, who we'll be talking about in future episodes of the VectorCast, who would go on to design Space Duel and Major Havoc and make contributions to a number of other games. And he says, Asteroids was being developed in a lab near mine. I used to go in and play late at night, sometimes until I filled up the high score table with my initials. Ed Log would come in next morning, reset it, work on the game, and come in the next day to find ORR was in every spot on the table again. So he put in a check for ORR and all other combinations of my initials so they'd be replaced with his. I sent a note telling him there was a bug till he told me what he'd done. I love that story. By this point, Lyle Raines was getting pretty excited about Asteroid's potential, so he set up a field test and some focus groups. By this time, it was June of 1979. Now remember, the initial meeting where Raines and Log came up with the idea for the game and the name was April. It's now June. So the whole project had really only taken two months by this point. Out of the focus group and the uh, field testing, one aspect of the game that got particularly positive feedback was the sound. People were really responding to the pulsing sound, saying it really built the tension as the game progressed. This was great for Howard Delman to hear, who, you'll recall, built in all those cool sound circuits, you know, wired them by hand. He said on the subject, that thump, 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 I was really trying to do a heartbeat. I sensed as the game sped up and you became more tense, your own heartbeat would speed up, and I really wanted to keep them in sync. We didn't have sound chips back then, so I created a hardware circuit for each of the 13 sounds by hand and wired them into Ed's board myself. And I find it interesting that the focus group project was made up of two different groups. One was older players who had had experience with Space War, and the other was a group of teenagers who had previously played Space Invaders. Some of the complaints that were heard, and these are still the complaints you will hear, were about the controls. And it seems that some people in the focus group were having a hard time with the thrust button and would have preferred a joystick instead. And that one actually did kind of surprise me, actually, because most of the time when I hear either you know younger players or people who didn't have a chance to play Asteroids in the arcades when it was out complain about the rotation buttons, but they seem to figure out the thrust button okay. Apparently, when it was being tested, that wasn't the case. They, they were okay with the rotation buttons, but wanted to thrust with a stick. So oh, go figure. Also, the younger focus group, um, the Space Invaders players, noticed there wasn't really anywhere where you could sort of hide and take a breather the way you can uh, in Space Invaders, for example, behind the barriers. Overall, though, the reception was overwhelmingly positive, and Ed Log recalls sitting back and watching players react to an early location test at an arcade in California. The game didn't have completed artwork on it, just the name on the marquee. And he says, a guy walks over and puts in his quarter and he died three times in about 20 seconds. Then he reached out, put another quarter in. I thought, okay, if he's dying three times and still putting in another quarter, he must think it's his fault, not that the game has got it in for him. He died again almost instantly. He put in quarter after quarter after quarter. So clearly asteroids had achieved one of the holy grails of game design. It was easy to learn and hard to master. By this time, Lunar Lander was shipping, 
but the response to asteroids was so great that Atari shifted almost all of its resources into it. In fact, the first 300 or so Asteroids games that were uh, shipped actually were shipped in Lunar Lander cabinets, which effectively shut down the Lunar Lander production run. Now, Asteroids, of course, went on to be an absolutely unqualified success. Over 70,000 units were eventually shipped, including several thousand that were sold under license overseas by Taito. And this is something I just found out recently. For those who have wished for a joystick control, you may want to see if you can find one of the Japanese games, because they did use a joystick for the rotation control rather than the buttons. I personally think that's wrong. I think the buttons are perfect. Now, if you're interested in playing Asteroids, it's still one of the easiest arcade games to find, and any retro arcade or arcade bar should have one. And if not, you can play home versions, starting with Atari's official release for the Atari 2600, a number of clever imitations for early 8-bit computers with names like the Asteroid Field, and one I remember playing as a kid, Appaloids, for the Apple II computer. That one was interesting. The Asteroids were actually in the shape of apples. How do you forget something like that? Activision also produced versions of Asteroids for the PlayStation, the N64, and Windows, and it's been in a number of classic arcade collections across just about every generation of home consoles. Most recently, Arcade 1UP has released a three-quarter scale cabinet version of Asteroids, which also comes with Lunar Lander, Major Havoc, and Tempest. Of course, it uses a 17-inch LCD screen, and my opinion, that's not the same experience, so it's not for me, but you know, whatever works for you. You can download a version of Asteroids for your Android or your iOS phone or device, and I'm happy to say, yeah, you can play Asteroids in your new Tesla. Yeah, I've been, I've been hanging out on that website again. Of course, as you all know, I am all about the original cabinets and the original experience, so my preference and my suggestion is to play on an original cab. And at the moment, my Asteroids machine is a cabaret, which I really like. I have an online high score save kit installed, which allows me to save the high score table. And it also uploads to a website so I can brag to the internet. Well, not me, but other people can come over to my house and play my game and they can brag to the internet. There are a few other options available for high score save kits. Braze Technologies has a basic model that saves the scores, and they also produce a kit that can add Asteroids Deluxe and Lunar Lander to an Asteroids game. So, a creature for my amusement. So, you've decided that you're ready to go find an Asteroids game. The good news is that there are a lot of them out there, and they are one of the most widely available classic arcade games. So you shouldn't expect to look long to find one, and when you do, it will most likely be toward the lower end of the price scale. What that scale will be, of course, depends on your location and timing, so I can't be much more specific than to say that Asteroids is certainly not a rare game, and it does not generally command the premium that the less common games do. Once you get your game, you're very likely to be embarking on a very smooth ownership experience. Now, it is, of course, a 40-year-old piece of technology, so it's reasonable to expect some wear and tear, and it's never a bad idea to treat a game like this gently. Regardless of the cabinet type, be it upright, cabaret, or cocktail, the inside of the game consists of a single printed circuit board based on the 6502 microprocessor for the game logic, an AR1 power supply and audio amplifier board, and a heavy power transformer assembly which sits right in the bottom of the cabinet, and that's usually known as a power brick. 
And of course, it also has a black and white vector monitor. The monitor in your asteroids could be any of the versions of the black and white monitors that Atari used. And there is an episode of the VectorCast in which we go into some detail on those monitors. And please feel free to give it a listen if you're interested in more information on them. The potential pitfalls in owning an Asteroids game are very similar to issues we discussed last time in our episode on Lunar Lander. Like so many Atari games, there is potential for some damage to the edge connector on the main PCB due to the design of the AR1 power supply board. We talked about that in the Lunar Lander episode, so I'll just mention it here. And just as with Lunar Lander, that kind of damage is a fairly simple repair for anyone who works on arcade boards. Also. Some of the very early production examples in the upright cabinet had the Electrohome GO5-801 monitor, which is a fine monitor, but it's less common and is not interchangeable with the later Electrohome and Wells Gardner black and white monitors. The cabaret and cocktail versions all use the 15-inch monitors, which are all of the later design. So if you have one of the smaller cabs, this isn't a concern. And again, it's a fine monitor. It's just a little bit less common if you do have the uh, GO5-801, and you can't swap it for the later GO5-801. 802 or the Wells Gardner 19V2000 or the Wells Gardner 15V2000 if it's a 15 inch. The only other real concern, again, just like uh, with Lunar Lander, asteroids cabinets are made out of particle board, which is heavy and very susceptible to water damage. Make sure you get a cabinet that has good bones. If you've got that, reproduction parts are available for just about everything for the upright cabinet, including side art, marquees, silkscreen control panels, or high quality control panel overlays if you don't want to replace the entire panel. As if that weren't enough, all of the printed circuit boards in the cabinet are easily available, relatively speaking, and it is completely possible to keep a complete set of spare boards handy so that if something goes bad, you can throw the spare in and just continue with your arcade party. There are plenty of these floating around and plenty of people who know how to repair them. Otherwise, there is very little that can go wrong in owning an Asteroids machine. And that is what I have for you today on Asteroids. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I have enjoyed making it. And if you have, please consider subscribing. You can look for us on Google Play, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've gotten a few five-star ratings since our last episode on Apple Podcasts, and I really want to thank you uh, listeners for those. You can also find us on our website at VectorCastPodcast.com. Facebook at facebook.com slash vectorcast, or follow us on Instagram at instagram.com slash vectorcastpodcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope to see you again on our next episode where we will be discussing Atari's third vector game, 1979's Asteroids Deluxe.